0: coming up on this episode of Leap Takers.
1: Whether you like it or not, whether it's good or bad, I don't know. But what happens is that the tsunami, like the dam literally broke and the tsunami of individuals that are empowered by the m- most magnificent leverage ever built, the internet, come to the market, it's going to be a chaos. And so the creator economy is really about this, like those individuals leveraging the media to scale themselves. Even more interestingly now, are starting to leverage code to even scale themselves increasingly. What I mean by that is that podcasters and YouTubers and all of this things, they had YouTube to scale themselves, right? Already, like just to replicate those videos to the infinite. But now they also have the tools like built by other startups to empower themselves with accounting, etc., etc. So then all this, the stack, the tool stack that they use are just gonna make them even more superhumans. And so that's really that. The creator economy is about, individuals that are using media to scale themselves using tools and services to even scale themselves at like a more important rate
0: Hi, everyone. I'm happy to bring you a new episode today of the Leap Takers podcast, where I'm, as always, interviewing up-and-coming European entrepreneurs, investors, and shapers from various fields to retrace the journey of how they started their own company and to discover the insights, tips, tricks, and advice they gathered so that you, too, maybe can take the leap. It has been a while, but I'm super excited to be back, and I have a super interesting guest today. His name is Hugo Amzalem. Hugo is originally from France and is one of the biggest proponents and thought leaders in the world of the creator economy. So the creator economy encompasses pretty much everyone that builds and creates something online. This could be podcasters, youtubers, streamers, indie hackers, Shopifyers, etc. We will talk a lot about this topic today and this trend and why it's so relevant in lots more detail in this episode. Furthermore, Hugo was part of the founding team of the family. The family is one of Europe's leading accelerators for startup founders. In fact, it's more of a fellowship and a community rather than a traditional accelerator. But we will cover that in more detail as well. All in all, Hugo is a fascinating guy and he has many very insightful thoughts and ideas. Also make sure to keep listening all the way to the end of this episode because his answer to my question about what courage means for him really blew me away. I thought it had a lot of wisdom in it, and I really enjoyed it. So having said that, please enjoy this episode with Hugo Amzalem. Hi, Hugo. Welcome to the LeapTakers podcast. Thank you so much for coming today on the show, and it's great to have you. Thanks for inviting me, Remo. Super excited. Yeah, very cool that we can make it happen. As always, I would like to start with getting to know you quickly, like how would you introduce yourself to someone you just met and just kind of briefly talk about what you're currently doing or building?
1: Yeah, well, essentially, uh, I'm I'm a super enthusiastic tech guy that is fascinated by two things, startups and creators. I initially started the music business. I wanted to save the artists because at the time, you know, we, we had no creators. We were just like musicians and musical artists. And then so I started working in the music business when I was 20. I did that for six months. I hated it. I left. I built my own company to replace the major labels. I failed and I joined uh, a company called The Family. I then, you know, went on the other side of the fence and helped more than 700 founders over the, the, the course of seven years to basically like be empowered with an amazing community in Europe. And then I left and started to really think a lot about the creators and the creator economy which essentially, and we're definitely going to dig about uh, around that a bit more, but which essentially is what happened in, in the startup world, but at the individual level, so like what happens when an individual scale. And I recently joined a company called Jelly Smack, which is a tech-enabled publisher for video creators, which essentially makes the video creators big on different platforms. And I joined them to build uh, an accelerator for creators. Obviously, we, we know accelerator for startups. We see YC, like The Family, and, and a lot of other startup accelerator And I'm trying to pioneer the, the acceleration for creators. And so I just joined a month ago, and, and the goal is to create the, the best program for creators, specifically YouTubers, to grow more ambitious and with the best resources around them and the best people. And we're going to obviously host that in LA which is the Silicon Valley of creators. And yeah, I'm super excited.
0: Yeah, I mean, also when I came across you a while ago, like I think you're really one of the guys that is big in the creator space. And uh, you also kind of coined or helped coin this term of creator economy, I think, or you co- uh, created a lot of content in that space. So we will definitely talk about that later uh, in this episode. Before we get there, I was just curious to learn about your personal path to into entrepreneurship or why you decided not to go into a corporate or like a more traditional path after university. So how did that look like for you? Like, yeah. what was it that made you then also join the family later and, and kind of go this non-traditional route?
1: I mean, it's, it's super simple. I, I think that I, I don't like the status quo. And and I'm not saying this as like, oh, I thought about this and like I decided to build a company because I hated the status quo. But no, because I I just that's what happened. And so because I hated the status quo and at the time the status quo was the music business, because that's what I was fascinated with. Right. Like I was fascinated uh, with music and I just wanted to help the artists and work in music. Obviously, I was not a good artist. So I was like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to help the artists with, you know, what I what I could actually be good at. And so when in 2007, eight, you're 20 and you want to go and work in the music business, the amount of toxicity and of like essentially like old people controlling an industry is super high. And so I literally tried to go into the music business, right? And I, and I worked for six months for, for a major label you know with like sort of like the the hat of the, of the of the young geek guy that knows internet and that will try to change the music business from the inside with the inside, etc. And after six months of basically like you know just nothing, fighting against, you know, a wall and and, and being super frustrated about like the music business not wanting to change a bit. I was like, fuck that, you know, like, there's no way that I'm going to spend like that amount of energy trying to move like one centimeter of a a wall, you know, like by my only force. So I was like, I'm just going to leave and build what I want, you know. Uh, And so what I wanted was like, okay, the artists, you know, now and that was at the time, you know, like the artists were, were just starting to leverage social media, meaning that they had YouTube a little bit, that they had Spotify and basically like the promise of, of digital distribution, et cetera. And what I, what it meant for me was like, okay, the artists don't need the permission anymore from the music label to actually connect to their fan, get an audience and produce their album. Because one, the cost of production, even then, but it was yet the beginning. The cost of production even then was plummeting. Like it was just super cheap to, to just record an album where like 10 years before that, you know, you, you you needed like at least 50k to 100k to record an album. And two, the cost of distribution was zero. So I was like, okay, you know what? I cannot change the music business from the inside. And I was pretty obvious after six months. So I'm just gonna leave. And and build what I want to build because what I want to build is essentially a platform, and the cost of creation of a platform is also super low. So you know I'll, I'll just I'll just do it, and that's literally what
0: happened. And so that was then the I guess your first company called Octo. Can you briefly explain what what actually Octo was, and then also your takeaways from that time that that you spent. Because I think the first company is always probably the hardest and you make a lot of learnings. Absolutely.
1: I mean, the main main thing that I learned, like, you know, first as a disclaimer is that I'm not a good founder. So that was, you know, one of the best learnings that you can get because, you know, like one of the magic thing about entrepreneurship is that like, and that's something that we used to say a lot at the family, uh, is that anyone can become an entrepreneur. And that's absolutely true. Anyone can. It doesn't mean that everyone will, but like a great entrepreneur can come from anywhere. And what that means. And for me, that's a really, really like central value and the central lesson. What that means is that everyone should try to become an entrepreneur because even if not everyone will become a great founder and will be successful, obviously, you know, not because that's like the rate of failure is super high. Becoming an entrepreneur will teach you a lot of things about yourself and even if you fail even if it's not for you you will become a better investor a better employee a better human to be frank uh, a better everything right so for me the big the central lesson was like okay you know what i'm maybe not a good startup founder maybe i could be like a good whatever founder you know like something else than a startup but essentially what happened is that I, I saw the artists, you know, like, and it's this thing that I was talking about, like that the artists didn't need necessarily like a lot of money to actually start creating an album, creating like a video uh, like clip or something like that. And they had the internet to actually connect directly with their fans. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna just build a Kickstarter for musicians, so a crowdfunding platform, so musicians could raise money from their fans. And then I'm gonna attach on top of that crowdfunding platform, I'm gonna attach a marketplace for skills, so then artists could also use that money to work with vetted professionals that are really good so they can realize their project. And so the goal was to help the music artists to obstruct the early stages of a major label. If you do the analogy with the, with like a startup and, and a musician, it's just like if a startup founder, if they wanted the like a little bit of money, the initial capital to start building their MVP, you know, it would be like getting a, a 50K of investment or hundred K of investment and giving away 80% of the business of the equity. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the deal for artists. Like they, they, at the time they're like, Oh, you know what? Like, I'm just going to sign with a major label, like for, for the next four albums, which is forever. And I'm going to just give away 80% of the, of the revenues, you know, for like the production of this first album, it's that high, it's crazy. Oh, it's, it's incredible. Right. And you understand why, because obviously like a lot of artists are just, you know, not successful. So like the music label, which have and super, super high cost. I mean, like a super heavy cost structure because they're not tech enabled, right? But it used to matter because like nothing was tech enabled at the time. So they needed to do everything manually. But now it was like 9, 10, it started to become like absolutely not true. So I was like, okay, you know what? Let's just build leverage for those early stage musicians so they can leverage the direct relationship that they have with their initial fans to raise that money, spend that money with us on the platform, and then basically build some leverage as to come back to the major label once they created an album, once they created something and be like, you know what, now it's not, it's not going to be 80, 20, it's gonna be 50, 50, you know, have some leverage. And so the the lessons obviously was, you know, like I said that I was not a good enough founder first, but then the lessons obviously like you have like a shitload of lessons. Like we, we, we did so many mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. But also the lessons is like crowdfunding is a really cheap business because like you have a super, super high acquisition cost, right? So like, you just work so hard to get an artist on your platform and then you have no retention there is like the 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 long-term value like is super super low because they Raise money on your platform and then they are gone. And there is no defensibility because once they're just gone, they are gone. They take their emails, like and that's it, that's it. You know, they go mm-hmm. if they want, if they want to do it again, they do it on another platform. There is absolutely no moat. So that was really like the main lesson that I had. You know, like CAC LTV ratio for like the you know, the most like business or startup one on one sort of like equation. That was that was the the, the learning. It's just like yeah. make sure that whatever you do, the cost of acquisition is lower than the the, the long-term time the long value of, of your customer because otherwise you're just gonna fight against the wind and that's super, 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 super tiring. Yeah,
0: yeah just to interject, well. I think, yeah, like the whole CAC, like customer acquisition cost to LTV ratio, I think it's something often overlooked for people that are interested in entrepreneurship, but they might not be that familiar yet with the, the ins and outs and like what you should focus on. And also, for me, in the past, it was not something I really cared that much about until I switched sides and became an investor. And it's is yeah. something you definitely always look at. And it's like a core thing you look at in, in a in a company.
1: And, and it's overvalued and under like it's at the same time undervalued and overvalued. It's undervalued because absolutely founders need to understand that like the basics of a business is like, okay, like you need to make more money from your customer than it costs to acquire that customer. That's super easy, right? But and, and and like for sure, like founders need to understand that, except. but it's also overvalued because I've seen a lot of companies initially not understanding that, building with amazing intensity for a super specific user with no CAC ratio at the beginning and then like understanding and iterating from that, right? So like it's not something that absolutely needs to be there at the beginning, but there's there needs to be like a progression and a learning curve as to understand at some point like the, the like the strategic positioning around around that that ratio and, and then, you know, like then one, once you have that learning curve, then founders are just like, you know, overperforming once they understand that anyway. So like, yeah, mm-hmm. you should have that in mind, but you should not be necessarily obsessed with that when you're starting a company because you, you'll figure it out
0: along the way anyway. Yeah, I fully agree. I mean, there's so many things you will figure out along the way. And I think also what you mentioned before, to become a founder is something that everyone or almost everyone should try to do it. I fully agree with your points that you made. And also it teaches you so much in, in skills as well, and you can learn so much because you have to do it yourself you cannot rely on like that in a big corporate someone else is going to do it or yeah there is a specific team for that so I think you will learn a lot and definitely also uh, agree with you there um, so coming back to what you said that you think you're not a good founder and that there were a lot of learnings that you made Do you think that there is something that now someone who wants to start a business or or, or a startup could already mitigate that risk of certain learnings that you made, that there is marked like a a crowdfunding is not a good business. Do you think there are any ways you can already think about that ahead of time or is it not worth it and you just kind of go for it and you you will make the learnings along the way?
1: Yeah, no, no, it's impossible to like, and, and again, like, you know, we tend to especially when you're a VC and then I have this professional like uh, deformation as well, even if I'm not a VC per se, but like when you're on the other side of the fence, not a founder, you're thinking about like risk assessments. Like you're thinking about like underwriting, you're thinking about that. And you're like, okay, like I want to do that for, for, for founders. So, like maybe founders should do that themselves. So then it's easier for me. The, the truth is that it's impossible to think about creating a company as like a rational thing. And so because it's impossible to think it, uh, about it like that it's it's impossible to like mitigate the risks the only risks that are like that are possible to mitigate is the risk of doing something that you should not be doing right now and f- for that you know like the question as a as an early stage founder that you should ask is essentially like do I have a choice to do that or 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 not like what i mean by that is that like all the best founding stories retrospectively are about founders that had no choice, right? So like either there's two options, like either they didn't have a choice because I don't know, like you know, like their their parents died like during I don't know, like a car crash, and they're like, you know what? I'm gonna spend the rest of my life just trying to solve like you know car accidents, death, whatever, and they're gonna invent whatever, and, and they don't have a choice because it's it's part of, of of themselves. It's it's not like this internal drive that is really obvious because that's that's for like a minority of people, but it's like this 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 thing where they're almost like they're almost like hyper obsessed people that don't have a choice but to do things, right? And so, like, this is the type of, of founders that, in general, I really like to interact with. It doesn't mean that every founder or every successful founder will have this trait, but it's, it's people like, they're they are not, it, like, what they're doing, building a company, doesn't feel like work. It just feels like something they have to do anyway, right? And so, in general, like, when you're, when you're an early stage founder, that's the question it's like, are you thinking about this intellectually too much? Well, you know, maybe you you're not just like, you know, obsessed with something and then like maybe you have the choice of doing something else. And in this case, you know, you can still build a company that's super fine. But building a company for me is just like entering a relationship. You need to give a hundred percent. You need to put all of your forces inside that. And if you have a doubt, if you, and everybody has a doubt, right? But like, if there is like this silent voice that is here that says like, ah, i I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. Just like, you know, you don't necessarily have to start something, you know, you can do, you can work for someone, et cetera, it's fine. Because it's just like when you take drugs, right? Like when you're, uh, if you wanna take LSD or if you wanna take like mushrooms, all of those drugs that you're like, wow. You know, if, if you're not 100% sure about doing it, you might have a bad trip, mm. right? And building a company is the same thing, you know? you you, it doesn't mean that you have to be an expert it doesn't mean that you have to be like a feeling like but if you feel like hell yeah like i have i just want to do it i don't have a choice i just want to do it i feel it right then like just do it if you don't have that and you are just overthinking it and have like you know just that's fine you know you can you can do some other things you know before like that feeling of like being sure comes and you can start side projects and and you know like whatever just like if you're if you're afraid of like taking like a full lsd you know dose, and please don't take lsd in general that's just like you know like a bad analogy maybe i just don't do it just do like a little thing and maybe you feel good and maybe you like uh, later on you'll be like you know what that's not a big deal i'll do the full dose right that's the same with entrepreneurship
0: (laughs) i like that and also maybe to add one thing basically the idea is often also overvalued in the beginning as a founder like ideas are great but it's it's not everything and you should rather focus, like you can make even an average idea work if you execute really well. And as you said, if you are really in it because you don't have a choice, I think you can even make something that is not probably the best idea work just because you work harder or you work better or you are better, have a better team. So that's also something I think to keep in mind. Absolutely, like, you know, just like as as a, as a quick, it's like ideas are,
1: are, are almost worthless. You know, it's just like, oh, I'm gonna, gonna... I'm going to find gold. I'm going to follow the gold rush. Like, there is no idea. It's like, it's not as, oh, I have the idea that gold is worth something. Of course, everybody has that idea, right? So like, it's the same with companies. Most of the ideas that you have, even if it's not like globally uh, realized for a lot of people, your idea will be as obvious as I want to find gold. You know, it's so Mm -hmm. obvious. So like the, if you want to find gold, like the, the, the worth, like the, the value is not in oh, I have the idea that gold is worth something, but it's like where to find, how to find, be obsessed about like a specific place, a specific technique, etc., etc., and just basically get your hand dirty. And at some point, maybe you'll find gold and then you'll be rich, right? And that's the same, right? So like 100% ideas are worthless, almost, you know, like there's an argument that could be made against that, but in general, that's, that's, that's quite true. Execution is everything. Yeah, fully agree. Let's
0: switch to another topic. So let's go to the family and i'm just personally also interested in the family because i have heard about it a while ago and before i spoil everything could you just explain the audience what the family is and kind of how you got involved and let's take it from there absolutely Uh, so the family
1: is the is the best place in europe for ambitious people to grow in the and surrounded by the by the best mindset the best people um, and the best infrastructure in general and for me you know that the story is super simple i i knew the family founders when I was building my first company and basically like when my company was starting to like go down and I was about to like stop it, they were about to start the family and they're like, Oh, like you should join as a founder. And I was about to stop. So they say, Oh, you should you should start, you know, like you should start with us, you know, you should just join, you know, like and so that's what happened. Like I, I literally joined as as soon as, as the family started. Mm-hmm. And and what happened is that, you know, like we basically had this thesis about the surrounding, I mean the things around the entrepreneurs in Europe being toxic, right? So like the ecosystem being toxic. And it was super simple for me to understand because I had seen that as a founder in 2010. Like you go to a party and you're like, oh yeah, I'm a startup founder in 2010. And people are like, hey, you don't have a job. You know, like that's what they hear, right? So you're not, like girls are not gonna get your number, people are not gonna talk to you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you could argue that this was the best test for people to actually, you know, like be the, like super motivated and, and sort of like a natural selection that will only allow the most invincible founders to emerge and, and survive. But that argument is, is a bit wrong because at that time, only the invincible founders could survive, right? So like those founders that whether you put them in, in San Francisco, in, in Russia, in, in Greenland, they are going to make a billion dollar company, right? And that's... That's always like a small subset of the humanity. I think that what was the pitch of the family and and what we achieved in Europe was to say, you know what, if we build an amazing non-toxic environment around the founders, a greater proportion of entrepreneurs will actually be successful. Because one of the learnings, because I I, I had, I spent three months in, in San Francisco trying to build a startup as well. And the, the biggest lesson for me in San Francisco was not that like, oh, that's, you know, like the, that they are amazing and this and that. It was like, wow, like it's incredible how average founders can be successful there because they're just propelled by an amazing infrastructure ecosystem and just like, you know, city in general that like even average people can succeed. And so the goal of the family was to recreate artificially this bubble of healthy environment in a toxic European environment, so then a greater subset of founders could be successful. And what that means was two, three things, three, four things, but like first, was to change the mindset of that small environment. So starting to create those memes, right? So like now you, you we're talking to each other, Oh, like ideas are worthless, execution is everything. That's a meme, you know, everybody understands that now in Europe. They're like, yeah, sure. Even if they don't understand that necessarily from like an intuitive point of view, it's still in their mind and they're still gonna say it. And, and that was like, that was not the case at that time. At that time, everybody was judging ideas. Like, and now you think about that as like, okay, we don't care about ideas. So we recreated this place where every person in our community, physical and, and digital, was getting the virus of those memes, right? So like, then if you, like, if you have a founder that enters this community, it's gonna get reinforced super fast, right? They're gonna be like, oh yeah, like ideas are worthless, ideas are worthless, and then they are gonna be like, oh yeah, ideas are worthless, right? It's just like a religion almost, right? Because mm-hmm. that's why like the family initially was built like as, as, a, as a mix between a temple and a school, it's not a school necessarily because we don't teach you things you know it's not like oh you're going to see it and we're going to teach you stuff but that's where that's a place where you learn so it's sort of like a school but not so school and also a temple because we were creating beliefs so it's not a religion but still it's belief centered right so the main thing was that like mindset community education and and around those values that were non-obvious in europe so ambition paid forward, you know, just like all like this positive some game mentality where if you help people in your community, it's not like a transaction where like they're going to give you something back, but you're going to get paid later on and you don't know yet how it's kind of like Mm -hmm. karma for business. So that was the first thing. Make sure that we create that and that spreads like a virus um, so that people who intuitively feel like that, but hadn't put words in, in like in those things were like, Oh, you know what? Like, now when i like when i see the family when i watch a video when i when i read an article when i see a tweet i'm like oh one i thought i was crazy but actually i'm not like those people are like me so maybe i'm not crazy and two, like, I'm not alone, right? So, like, there's mm. those people exist. And so, like, people were getting out of the woods. So, like, crazy founders that felt that something was wrong with the environment around entrepreneurship in Europe, they were building stuff, you know, alone. They're like, you know what? I'm going to get out of the woods and I'm going to go to the family. And so that was the first thing. The second thing, obviously, and it's really going to be quicker, was to build an infrastructure. What an infrastructure means is the best tools, the best services, the best providers, the best deals of everything, right? Like, we started to build that layer by layer so then you know we could delay the need for capital and we could also delay the death for startups what i mean by that is that when you when you when you build a company and you want to talk to a lawyer in europe at that time there's a high chance that you'll talk to a lawyer that has never seen a company like a startup company and they were going to do like a crazy shit deal for you like just like oh you know no vesting schedules all of those things right so like we started to build layer by layer infrastructure of the best provider. If the provider didn't exist, we created the best providers. You know, we created like a, a lot of perks with the best startups. So then startups could use other startups products for super cheap, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And then the third thing was obviously capital. And, and essentially what we did is find the best capital for founders, whether it's the best angels and blacklist all the others that are just taking too much equity with bad terms, then the best VCs. So at the beginning, we were starting to we were just working with a few VCs because 90% of the VCs were toxic in Europe. But then slowly by slowly, they could become better and better and better. Uh, and so we we're like just making sure to protect our founders from bad investors, bad actors in general. And so mm-hmm. that, we did that for seven years, beginning at, in Paris, and then in the rest of Europe. And
0: and yeah, yeah, I mean, very cool. And how, how did it work? Is it like you Basically, is it like a cohort that you got together or is it like continuous that you could just apply to the family and be part of it? Or how was the the structured program?
1: So initially, I mean, up until like a year ago, there was no cohort. It was just like on rolling batches And, and it's for a super simple reason. The reason that cohorts existed for startup accelerator was for the demo day. Right. And so the demo day for the people who don't understand, it's just like, oh, you do three, three months of, of, uh, of uh, an acceleration program as a startup. And then at the end, you pitch like a crowd of investors. And, you know, that's where you raise monies. Right. So like you could argue that like the accelerator was really about optimizing for your fundraising and for your seed fundraising. And it was it was a really, really good solution for an American problem. You know, the problem in the US. Is that like you had too many startups or too many investors? Blah blah. So you need to you needed to structure that, right? So like YC and all of those things were basically like trying to structure the fundraising process, Uh, and obviously at the same time create community and 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 and, you know like create intensity for the founders for those three months to be really like uh, blah blah. And so in Europe there, there was no good investors. So if you wanted to do a demo day, by definition, you had to fill up the room with shitty investors. And so that defeats the purpose, right? Yeah. and And the way that I pitched it was like San Francisco, it makes sense to create an accelerator, you know like like in in two thousand seven when they started. Why? Because San Francisco is an amazing startup infrastructure. It's an amazing startup city, right? So if you have an amazing startup city with the best roads, with the best cars, with the best light signals and everything, it makes sense to create a, a, a an airport so then startups could take off in the middle of the city, right. But when in Europe, you're in a desert and you have no city and it's fucking you know empty, you're not gonna build the same airport in Europe. You're gonna build something different. You know, you're gonna build a city first. And so what we created at the family was not an accelerator per se with this ramp of you know because there is no nothing to be to, to take from. Yeah, we we, we build the city right. We build a startup city that was super small at the beginning because you're not gonna build LA in day right. You're gonna build a small village. And so like we we're starting to create like a family which is the smallest unit, you know, like atomic unit that you could create, Mm. and then it became a village, and and then so now the family that switched 100% online, the family is doing a batch, because now you have enough of things around the founders in Europe, you have enough of towns, of cities, that you can start to build like a small airport, right? And Mm. that's essentially the the thing behind
0: it. I I love the analogy. I think that makes complete sense. And also like, just to underline what you said, I think when you say that Europe was a desert, (laughs) recording <laughs> investors, I think you you talk about like, yeah, end of like 2006, seven, around that time, right? And I think nowadays it really changed. You have a lot of U.S. investors that came to Europe, a lot of uh, VCs that got started in the last, let's say, five, six years in Europe. Yeah, five, are... six
1: years, not 2006, yeah. seven, like yeah. up until 2016, roughly. That's where like things shifted. But you still had like a like shitty VCs, a lot Mm -hmm. of them, like financial people. They're just like, and I mean, you could argue that financial VCs are are the best, right? Because they don't understand shit. And they're like, you know what, just let's, you know, let's try to back those guys. Right. And let's see what happens. Right. So that's cool. Because then now the VCs who who are often like ex-founders, they think they know. And sometimes when you think too much that, you know, you're missing the stupid deal that looks stupid when you invest, but that actually would become like the outlier. Mm. So the, the shift really happened in 2016, but we started in 2013 and, and now it's becoming, yeah, like, like you said, like, it's super cool. Like the startup environment and the funding environment. It's super cool, mm. but it's really recent. It's, yeah. it's more recent than, than, than most people think.
0: And how, like, if you want to get involved with the family, I mean, I am know, know you're not part of the family anymore, but do you know how or who the target audience is? Can anyone in Europe that wants to start something apply and become part of it? Or kind of what is the target group of, of the family? I'm going to make sure to not say something inaccurate,
1: but I think it's for everyone in the world right now. Obviously, most of the people who are going to be applying at the family are going to be European founders. But I think that's like essentially now you can you can actually apply from from wherever you are, thanks you know like of the magic of, of the internet, and essentially like yeah it's like as as early as as possible you should apply to the family. It doesn't mean that you're gonna you know you're gonna get accepted first because obviously this is a a program now that empowers founders to actually raise money in the best condition as possible with the best people as possible, and so if you are just starting building something get in touch with the family to build the relationships and when that would be like the perfect time then you will join and you will accelerate uh, your your fundraising process in in I think it's uh, it's seven or six weeks so yeah. yeah anytime it's just super easy apply you know like on the website and and start building the relationships and I think that's that's about that I mean it's called the family for a reason the goal is to build the relationship and and you know that there's it's never too early to build a, a relationship
0: good looking at the time let's go to another topic so we mentioned it in the intro you are a big proponent of this creator economy and also what you mentioned what you're building right now so let's start with the creator economy don't need to go into full details but what is the creator economy and why do you think it's more and more relevant and then from there we can take it what you're building right now
1: Sure. I mean, the creator economy is, is one of the expression of the paradigm shift that Internet brought to the world. I call that the post permission world, the, the world where you don't need to ask for permission anymore. And when you think about it, like even 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if you wanted to learn something, if you wanted to build something, if you wanted to distribute something, you needed to ask for permission respectively from school, banks and media. And internet came and suddenly you don't need to ask the permission to anyone mm-hmm. anymore. And, and so the first institution that emerged out of this revolution was the startup, you know? And obviously like 15 years ago, even if internet was still there, it was still super expensive to build a company, a startup. You know, you needed like roughly like five million to just launch something in 95. And gradually it became so cheap that now like you and I could just, with a couple of MacBooks, could just, you know, build a a company, raise money, etc. So, we understand that, we understood the startup movement and the startup phenomenon over the past 10 years, and essentially, someone called Steve Blank nailed the definition of a startup because people didn't know what a startup was, they they thought it was a small company, they they thought that startup was defined by size, etc. Where actually, startup is defined by only one thing, by scale. A startup is an organization that scale and scale is super simple is because they leverage code and code has zero marginal cost of production which means that if you run a line of code whether it's one person that runs it or a thousand person it's the same cost for you right it's just like on a server and the marginal costs are, are like in, like decreasing you know? and you could argue that they're zero but they're they're super low and so the thing is that We theorized that it was mainly understood and now we understand. Startup equals scale. Startup is an organization that scales. What happens is that the costs became so low now and the infrastructure became so great that now even individual can scale. Not organization, individual. And essentially, a creator is to the startup what an individual is to the organization. A startup is an organization that scaled through code a creator is an individual that scaled through media because both media and code have zero marginal cutoff for production where you put a, a video on the internet and and a million people watches it or one person is the same cost for you it's the same and so this dna is is essentially the same and so the creator economy is essentially what happened to the startup world but at the individual level and obviously those individuals, those YouTubers, those podcasters, those shopifiers are essentially scaling themselves without the permission from the old institutions. And that's the fucking tsunami. Because when you think about this, industrial world institutions were built on permission. The banks, the media, the schools, like everything was built on the fact that one person at some point had the permission to tell you you can have that or not when in 10 years 20 years max when all of this you know goes to shit whether you like it or not whether it's good or bad i don't know but what happens is that the tsunami like the dam literally broke and the tsunami of individuals that are empowered by the most magnificent leverage ever built the internet come to the market it's going to be a chaos and so the creator economy is really about this, like those individuals leveraging the media to scale themselves. Even more interestingly, now are starting to leverage code to even scale themselves increasingly. What I mean by that is that podcasters and YouTubers and all of the things, they had YouTube to scale themselves, right? Already, like just to replicate those videos to the infinite. But now they also have the tools, like built by other startups, to empower themselves with accounting, et cetera, et cetera. So then all the the stack, the tool stack that they use are just going to make them even more superhumans. And so that's really that. The creator economy is about individuals that are using media to scale themselves, using tools and services to even scale themselves at like a more important
0: rate. And that's, you know, like a fucking fascinating when you think about it. Yeah, it's something that really revolutionized the the way you can leverage yourself as an individual as you mentioned and which would not have been possible 20 years ago so very interesting times are happening right now and you see yeah people with huge audiences what they can achieve and what impact they can have on on real world initiatives or things happening so yeah that very interesting thing and i also encourage people like to check out your substack. you call it arm the creators You cover a lot of tools there. And also you have a few articles about the creator economy. So if people want to dive deeper, they can check that out. Before we get to the end and the quick rapid fire round, just tell us again, what are you building right now? And is it mostly focused on YouTubers or or what is the, the, the audience that you're targeting at the moment?
1: Yeah, absolutely. My thesis is that everything that I saw happen in the past 20 years around the startup, which essentially means like the sophistication of everything, the education, so the memes, people understanding, you know, like what is a startup, how to build a startup, and then, you know, this, this meme spreading a lot, whether it's about the infrastructure, so new tools, new services, new providers really specialized in serving that, you know, specific uh, startup, uh, founder, etc. and obviously like the sophistication of the capital, right? Like where, you know, like the, the, the equity funding, like SAFE, all of the sophistication in general that happened in 20 years because a creator is also result of scale, that sophistication will happen also to the creator world, right? So there's going to be like VCs, I mean VCs, like investors that are going to be specialized in creators. Like the whole ecosystem of creators focused on the creator is going to explode, right? And so because I see that happening, I, I and I have a diff, like a like a professional diff, like a, a deformation or like a professional bias because I did the family for for startups and I saw the benefits of creating a group of crazy people that then don't think they're crazy anymore because they're together. I'm like, okay, that that needs to happen for the creator world for a lot of different reasons that I obviously talked about for the family. And it's obviously the same for the creators. Right now, the environment around creator is super toxic for one central reason is because Los Angeles is based on a zero sum game mentality. What I mean by that is that because you have a limited number of seats at the film table, at the TV show table, because you know there's a finite amount of movies that are gonna be produced per year, then people are fighting against each other for those seats, right? And therefore like the, the, the mindset is is specific. Where in San Francisco or in the startup world, there's a positive sum mindset which means that there's an unlimited market that is growing at an incredible rate so that the startup founders are not gonna compete against each other. They have an interest, almost like an egoist interest, to help each other because then they're gonna be helped in return. And I think that's one of the thing that I wanna build as creating this creator accelerator is the first place where in Los Angeles, the creators are thinking and the people around the creators are thinking with this positive sum game because where LA and the film industry is like they're just like limited number of seats. The creator economy just kills all of that because anyone can build an audience because it's in the world. Nobody needs the permission. So nobody is saying like who deserves an audience and that's how many people deserve an audience. Mm. Anyone in the world can can build a, a massive audience. And so the mindset is going to change. So the reason why I'm building this creator accelerator is that the mindset around those creators needs to be different. And so I want to create like a different community that thinks like you and I. And, and then obviously the infrastructure needs to be a little bit different as well. The providers, the lawyers, the accountants, the directors, whatever, like all of the people working around those creators are going to be different than the, the L.A. mindset. And I want to create that infrastructure as well. And obviously the capital we're going to invest essentially 25K in roughly 20 to 30 creators at the beginning, YouTubers Mm -hmm. that are in between 5K and 30K uh, subscribers, that in terms of the ambition that they have, are thinking about themselves as entrepreneurs also, not necessarily only entrepreneurs, but thinking about like creative founders sort of thing. And they want to build something huge and we want to create the best place for them to actually. Have the best chances of a massive success, and so we're going to invest 25k in those uh, early uh, YouTubers to actually give them six months to a year in front of them as like a run rate, so they can really like be focused 100% on mm-hmm. their content and not having to take side gigs or side hustles or like doing being a provider for someone else, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's essentially what we
0: want to do. I have to ask, what what is then kind of your what do you get in return for providing them with this capital, this runway to Focus fully on creating. Do you that's a really good question. Like a, a, a revenue share later, or is there some? Have you thought about that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, and, and that's that's a topic that I'm really really obsessed with because the like the growth of the creator economy will be a function of people being able to invest in them and being rich with it, like make, making money out of that. Because when you unlock that alignment of interest of investor investing and then becoming rich, then you unlock like a shitload of capital. And then obviously you unlock a shitload of creators, you know, like being able to give themselves the means of their ambition. What I mean by that is that right now, you could say like, oh, I'm gonna invest in a creator and the creator is gonna create a company and I'm gonna invest as like an equity deal. But the thing is that today, there is still not yet a way that you can make sense out of equity investment for creators. Why? Because even if creators scale themselves, they don't have, yet sort of like a, a textile valuation they are yet valued for right reasons as a multiple of their cash flows you know like so they're really about like cash flow so they're like getting brand deals etc even if they can create amazing cash flows it, it, the valuation is still going to be like two three x the the yearly revenue right so it doesn't make sense so much to invest in equity in them and therefore because you cannot invest in equity and and, and have like a billion dollar creator today then like people are not investing like that. People are investing in revenue base, right? So they're like, oh, I'm going to give you money and then, you know, like you'll reimburse me out of your future uh, revenue. But right now what happens and it's what's what's really toxic is that most of the people are investing in creators by basically taking future revenue, like a share of the future revenue in perpetuity, right? So like, oh, I'm going to invest 10K in your company, in in your in yourself as a creator, and then I'm going to take 5% of your 360 revenues forever, right? And you're like, that, I mean, that's cool for an investor if you become successful, but that's super toxic because, you know, you're stuck with that person just taking money from you for, mm-hmm. forever. Yeah. Uh, and then it's difficult to value the value of forever, etc. So like, how do you get out of those deals? You're like, I don't know. And so what what I what I want to pioneer is a financial instrument to invest in creators in a healthy way today. So it's, sort of like an isa so an income share agreement but at the company level not at the individual level so it means that you invest 25k and then you get 20 percent of their revenue out like after a threshold you know so after like x euro that they make so they can pay themselves first and then one you have a limit in the time so like sort of like after seven years you're not going to take more money and you also have a cap which is like after they reimburse three or four x of the initial investment they're like, you know, it's not like a debt instrument because they're just like free. And and the goal is to also have that, you know, like investment being convertible into like equity at the preferred uh, or discount in case then the creators as an asset class, as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur, as, a, as an institution, starts to not only have cash flow valuations, but starts to have tech valuation because they scale themselves to incredible heights, right? So right now, most of the money that a creator makes is about like brand deals and ads revenue, et cetera. But right now there is a shitload of business infrastructure that is being built as to scale the creator on merch, on educational product, et cetera, et cetera, that then could have tech multiple because they have tech leverage, right? Mm. And so I want to have this deal that can be an ISA for the creator at the company level that is super healthy, but that could also convert then as an option to equity. If that creator grows super ambitious and if that creator is actually is building a, a, a commerce empire, uh, an education empire out of the audience and the attention that they gathered on the social platform. And that's what I think will unlock the, the 100x growth for the whole creator economy if mm. that happens.
0: That's super cool. And I think also like just thinking a bit further, you even create almost a new asset class also then like as 100%. investing in, in creators. So, but I think that's a topic for another discussion. So you if you have time for one, two last questions. Um, yep. So just switching to the, the rapid fire questions, just would like to get your first thoughts around like a favorite book or resource you have, maybe one that had a big impact on yourself, but it could also be related to the creative economy itself, if there's something that you would recommend people to check out. I got into the Nassim Taleb rabbit hole like a
1: few years ago and I've, and and I've yet to get out of it. I think that Nassim Taleb has written uh, a masterpiece over the years that are structured in four uh, books, but that are you know, like those four books are just one book essentially, you know, and, and I think that that, those books actually were the books that changed the operating system in my mind the most. And I, and I, and I think that those books are also in general true, like as like intemporal truths sometimes, right? So like just learnings from history and, and learnings from like human natures and, and societies, et cetera. But weirdly enough, they're also absolutely relevant in a really profound and deep way in the internet age with this kind of like, like internet inequality of return, right? So like, cause people can scale, then the winners are gonna be big, right? So like that change of paradigm, because people couldn't scale like that before is is like, and it's weird, but like Nassim Taleb from his almost like intemporal thinking really understood and wrote books that helped anyone to understand that, you know, like future and that sort of like Internet based DNA. And so I really encourage anyone to read Antifragile, to read, you know, uh, Fooled by Randomness, to read uh, Black Swan and obviously Skin in the Game, because I think those are the pillars uh, of understanding the world as it works today and as it will increasingly work tomorrow.
0: Yeah, I fully agree with those books. So I, I have to read The Black Swan. It's on my list and I read Fooled by Randomness, but fragile yeah, is the best for me. Like you just said okay. like, you
1: try it's incredible.
0: Cool. Yeah, I, I, it's definitely very high on my list of books to read. I'm really <laughs> looking forward to that one. Great. Then let's go to the last question. So I always ask this, my guests, what does courage mean to you personally? Like could be in the terms of starting something, but also whatever it means for you.
1: It's really difficult. I, I, I think I, I ask myself this question regularly, you know, and and, and I have no answers to be frank. Why? Because so let's put it that way. Whether you start a company or you do whatever in life, I think there is three options for you. You know, you can optimize for three different things. Essentially, you can optimize for security. You can optimize for freedom or you can optimize for glory. And there is no correct answers, obviously. Right. But this like the question is really interesting to ask yourself. Some people want to optimize for for security. They take a job and everything is fine. But if you consciously want to optimize for security because of your surroundings, because of your situation, there's nothing wrong with that. Some people optimize for freedom. So they're like freelancers. They're like bootstrap founders. They don't want to take any investment. They just want to have freedom, right? They don't want anyone to manage. They want any board. They don't want anyone to invest in themselves. And they just want to be about themselves, right? So there's still risks, right? But it's a bit mitigated. And then there are people who are optimizing for glory and you know, I think that courage is essentially about optimizing your life for glory. And right now we're talking about like, Oh, raise money, like take risks, be like go big or go home, et cetera. But I'm a bit, because we're talking about courage, right? So you know, for sure, it's, it's really courageous to build a company and raise money and just try to either like be huge or just die. But I think that Curse essentially was about people going to war at the time. And and I like this story about like, you know, like the, 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 the like a child Achille, Achille, like the guy from Troy, like Brad Pitt in mm. Troy. <laughs> you know, before before he went to war, like he's just like asks his wife, ah, should I go, should I not? He's like, ah, whatever. And and then and then the wife I think she says like, Okay, you know what? Like you don't you you, you could stay there. You know, you're like you're a tribe's leader. You know, if you stay there, people are gonna love you. Like you know, like your your kids are gonna remember you, your grandkids are gonna remember you. But then after a couple of generations, people are be like, "Who the fuck was this guy?" Like, "Oh yeah, like I don't know." And or you can go to war, right, and fight the greatest fight there is, and you'll probably die. Ninety percent of chance you'll die, but if you do, and if we win, we're gonna write songs about you, and people, like for generations are gonna sing uh, your praise. And and I think there's no good thing, right? But like, I think courage first is to one, realize what game you wanna play, what do you wanna optimize for, security, freedom, and glory. And then like on another level, the other level of courage is to actually have the courage to choose for glory at some point in your life. Not necessarily all the time, but at some point of your life, you need to optimize for glory. Because if you don't, then you'll never know and that's the worst to just die and be like what if i could have been glorious you know maybe you try maybe you fail but you know you're like oh, yeah no it was not for me but what if and i think that's 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 courage
0: okay i think that's one of the best answers i've got to that question so i really liked your answer <laughs> those of this i mean to really think about these three things like what do you want to optimize for uh, it really makes you think yeah so thank you for that and with that, thanks again, Hugo, for, for coming on the podcast. Just last question, where can people find you? Where can people find more about Twitter,
1: what you're Twitter, building? Twitter, Twitter, at Hugo M-Z-M, A-M-S-E-L-L-E-M. And, and so, like, yeah, that's where most of my professional and personal connections are happening these days. So, yeah, use Twitter, guys and girls.
0: Great. And your newest company is called Mac.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean that's the company that has just joined Chelly Smack, helping okay. creator go big.
0: Perfect. So thank you so much, Hugo, and good luck with your future adventures and ventures. So all the best. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Hey, before you go, I just want to ask you for a very small favor. If you get any value out of this podcast, please quickly head over to the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you are listening to this and give the Leap Takers Podcast a positive rating. It just takes 10 seconds. This would really help me to get more visible and I'll be able to continuously bring on great guests to this show. If you want to do even more, you can now easily donate something to support with the costs of this podcast. Just go to leaptakers.com and you see a coffee mug at the bottom of the page. If you click on it, you can donate a small amount, as much as you want, like buying me a coffee, which helps me to cover the costs of this podcast like posting, editing tools, etc. Thank you so much. As always, if you have any feedback or want to get in touch, just shoot me a message. You can find all my contact info as well as all social channels on leaptakers.com. Thanks again for listening and until next time, bye-bye.